to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, we on Stuff Mom Never Told You have talked about the spicy Latina stereotype, the Pocahontas princess Native American women stereotype, uh, exoticizing women of color. And now today... We're going to dig into stereotypes about Asian women, and particularly East Asian women. Yeah, and the thing is, there's there's not just, unfortunately, one Asian lady stereotype to zero in on for this episode, but the ones that we are going to dive into should be pretty familiar to a lot of our listeners. The idea of the dainty, submissive geisha or the diminutive china doll, the angry, sexualized dragon lady or the overbearing tiger mom. So all of these stereotypes should be pretty familiar to our listeners. We've touched on a couple of them in the podcast before, but we're really going to zero in on the fetishization of East Asian women. Yeah, and the phrase that comes up a lot to talk about that kind of fetishization, particularly within American culture, with the idea of white men especially being particularly drawn to East Asian women, is the whole yellow fever so-called phenomenon. And I realize that that is uh, not the nicest way to put it. It's an uncomfortable phrase to even say on the podcast, Caroline. But that is, I mean, that's what it's called for better or for worse. I mean, it, it gets at the slur and sort of the creating a monolith out of all of these women. It's the same thing as exoticizing women of color. It's just mm-hmm. a different brand of that. And that exoticization of non-white populations is definitely nothing new. And in terms of the topic at hand today, well, we've been doing it since about the time of Marco Polo. Yeah, I mean, essentially once there was Western contact with the Far East the Orient started to develop that that mystical quality, and then all of this gendering started to happen. Not only of obviously like the women and men, and like drawing you know stereotypes about the type of people they were, but even gendering the entire geography because this whole issue of Western fetishization when it comes to East Asia is really a story of imperialism. And this was something that Patricia Park laid out really well over in Bitch Magazine in an article called The Madam Butterfly Effect. Um, and like you said, Caroline, it, it does go back to Marco Polo's 13th century jaunt to China and the whole development of the Silk Road. And once there started to be those exchanges of goods and stories brought back from the East. Right. Just like things that people in the West had never seen before, uh, whether that was spices or fabrics or just, you know, um, human beings yes. that we considered to be so insanely different from ourselves. Um, but it's interesting when you do look at that gender aspect, because East Asia as sort of a whole, has been historically feminized in the eyes of the West, sort of as a reaction against its formidable strength. We could not come in and take over, essentially. We couldn't come in and be the boss. And so we ended up fetishizing entire groups of people and claiming the women for our own, us being the West, and typically Western men. Yeah, and and this pathological fetishization is called Orientalism. And ultimately, it is an Occidental or Western attempt to masculinize itself and cement global dominance. And you see this fetishization of East Asian women happening, uh, particularly peaking at different times, when on the flip side of that, a cultural castration of Asian men happens. And we're not going to have time to get into that on the podcast today, but just kind of keep in the back of your mind how while these women were being sort of elevated and sexualized, we were doing the opposite to Asian men in a lot of ways. Uh, but things really began to fetishize in earnest. And Caroline, if we had a dollar already for the number of times we said fetish, a version of fetish in this podcast, we could... By a sandwich. 
Oh, perfect. Yes. You're speaking my language. But yeah, so it began in earnest, though, in the 1840s, after the Opium Wars opened up British access to China. And this was something that Patricia Park talked to Kim Brand about, who is an associate professor of Japanese history and an author as well. Yeah, because suddenly you have these buttoned up Victorian men, as she calls them, uh, confronted with the image of the Japanese geisha. This is a culture that had previously been close to the West. They'd kicked the white people out. They were sick of them trying to make a buck with, through trading. And so J- Japanese culture had been pretty close to Westerners for a long time. Um, but once you have white guys returning to Japan, to China, to this whole region... They're sort of blown away at what they're seeing, especially when they are confronted with the women around them. Yeah, so all of this leads up to the 1887 publication of the book that set off this whole thing. Even still today, we are seeing echoes of it in this entire concept of yellow fever. So in that year, a French writer named Pierre Lodi publishes Madame Chrysanthème. Pardon my poor French pronunciation. Uh, and it is a massive hit. And the whole plot line will probably sound a little bit familiar. It's about this French naval officer who travels to Nagasaki and has an affair with his quote-unquote temporary bride, Chrysanthème, who's one of many delightfully diminutive doll-like women he discovers in Japan. And this whole tale is a huge, huge hit. There are dozens of reprints and translations out of the gate. And it is considered the seminal text that created the Western idea of East Asian women. So thanks a lot, Pierre. Yeah, I mean, this is part of the trend of white guys shaping how we view Asian women as a whole, where we get this whole idea, this whole stereotype of all Asian women being small, dainty, wayfish women who are able to satisfy you sexually in ways that you've never dreamed of before. And meanwhile, though, I think it's important to note, this is just one of many of Lodi's tales of exploiting foreign women uh, that he encounters. So, like, traveling the world, writing variations on Madame Chrysanthème, just in different countries. Like, oh, well, now I'm going to exploit this country's women and this region's women over here, shaping all of them into these perfect little submissive dolls. So he's basically the original globetrotting bro who comes home with so many stories, you wouldn't believe the women, man. You gotta get over there. That's right. And just like with those people, I would imagine that Not all of his tales of conquest are true. No, seriously. (laughs) It's true, man. I'm telling you. She lives in Canada. You wouldn't know her. It was crazy. Um, But Lodi's success in this whole story inspires another guy named John Luther Long, who writes a short story a lot of listeners have probably heard of called Madame Butterfly. So now I don't have to uh, try to mispronounce <laughs> Chrysanthem. Um, and Madame Butterfly is all about a dude named Lieutenant Benjamin Franklin Pinkerton and his temporary Asian bride, Chocho-san, who has his baby, who is then named Trouble, and then, spoiler alert, she kills herself. Well, I think actually in the short story... Uh, they generously allow her to just attempt to kill herself and then she gets to live out like a troubled and miserable existence with her child from then on out. But it's not until we get uh, the Puccini opera of Madame Butterfly, which I believe is when that character kills herself. Puccini's like, oh, you know what audiences love? Suicide. Well, right, because then, so not only do you have the dainty, submissive sexually satisfying woman, but you throw in some self-sacrifice into all of that to make her like the perfect lady martyr figure for a white guy? Yeah, a woman who is so in love with you that when she can't have you, she kills herself. Yeah. Hello, what a dream gal. Um, Yeah, Madama Butterfly premiered in 1904 and remains one of the most performed operas in the U.S. and abroad. And Caroline, is this the moment when we, when we can take a, a quick side trip to talk about 
high school. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I don't understand how I got through so many, so many of my years, um, without putting these two pieces together. I guess it's just because I'm not a Puccini fangirl. Like mm-hmm. maybe I should be. But as I was researching and reading for this episode, I was seeing the name Pinkerton, Pinkerton, Pinkerton. Oh, my God. That was one of my most favorite albums in high school. The beloved second release of Weezer. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, of course, I realized listening to it approximately one bajillion times that he is singing about Chocho-san and yeah. all this stuff. But I never put two and two together. It, it it sort of blew my mind, too. I can't believe in the number of times that I listened to that record growing up and even as a college student that uh, I didn't I didn't realize that that's the connection. And I this whole time I had just been thinking Rivers Cuomo is just some sort of like creep with yellow fever fetishization of Asian women. And it's not that I'm necessarily wrong, but I was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, thinking, oh, well, he just really likes Puccini or he really likes Madame Butterfly. Like, that's great, right? That's cultured. That's emo. That's not really emo. Don't send me your letters (laughs) clarifying why Weezer is not emo, please. (laughs) Um, Well, so I, I did a little Googling. I wanted to better understand the connection there between Weezer and Madame Butterfly. But basically, in this Rolling Stone interview that I read with Rivers Cuomo, he goes on and on about how in listening to Madame Butterfly over and over again, he becomes fascinated with the character, with her character, and at the same time became infatuated with that type of girl that's in the opera. And he says that he identifies with the Pinkerton character because he's basically like the rock star of his day who goes from port to port picking up ladies. And I was like, no. Well, I guess, okay, considering the popularity of Weezer, all right, Rivers Cuomo, you are a tortured Pinkerton. Maybe that's why he entered his celibacy phase for a while. Um, But it was it was just surprising, again, that it somehow took this long. Thank you, Stuff Mom Never Told You, for putting the pieces together. And it's also interesting to to really just keep in mind that these stereotypes and this fetishization led to a hundred years plus of this self-sacrificing storyline. Because then all of this Madam Butterfly business inspired 1989's Miss Saigon, which is basically the same story, but told about a Vietnamese woman rather than uh, a Japanese woman. Yeah. And if we move forward in our timeline, we'll hop back from Weezer, (laughs) but forward from uh, Puccini. When we're in the 20th century, we have the emergence of a new sexualized stereotype, the dragon lady. And this is the cunning femme fatale foil to the china doll slash lotus flower. And the term was coined in the 1930s. Yeah, it was used to describe Empress Dowager Si Chi. Uh, as she was slanderously portrayed in British historian Hugh Trevor Roper's completely false account of his affair with her. Among other things, uh, this guy claimed that the Empress had an oversized clitoris. So good for him, just slut-shaming women that he never actually had any sort of contact with. Well, and that reflects how these stereotypes do tend to uh, meander down to vulvar anatomy. Mm-hmm. And yes, vulvar is an adjective. It's a yeah. little awkward to say, but it does exist. Yeah, that's just it's just one of of many that are vulvar related. Yeah, and have to do with size and assumptions about size. Yeah. And that's something too, echoing back to our podcast on uh, big butts and the fetishization, uh, particularly of women of color, and with the story of Sarky Bartman mm-hmm. and all of that fascination. Um, as well with, or I shouldn't say fascination, but even just dark obsession with this idea that Native African women had different sized uh, vulvas compared to white women as well. So all sorts of just horrible types of things like that going on. Um, 
And one person that we wanted to talk about in terms of the portrayals of the stereotypes in Hollywood, once we move from literature and into uh, film, in early Hollywood, one of the only Asian American actresses that you saw on the silver screen was a woman named Anna Mae Wong. And our cultural treatment of Asian women is so much reflected in her career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this really echoes the career paths of a lot of black actresses during this time, too, who were often shuttled off into roles as maids, housekeepers, and the like. Um, Anna Mae Wong, for instance, appeared in 60 films Always, though, as some type of slave, temptress, prostitute, or doomed lover. There was always some sort of subservient sexuality and sexual tension going on. And we wanted to spend a little time talking about her biography and experience in Hollywood because, to me at least, it was so informative of how these stereotypes really took root and manifested in the United States. And I highly recommend listeners that you read the BuzzFeed piece about this written by the fantastic Anne Helen Peterson, who has also been on the podcast. Um, she wrote a great piece about anime Wong, and it is a recommended read. And Wong was a Chinese-American actress born in L.A. in 1905. And even the fact that she was <laughs> born in the United States was something that Hollywood tabloids could never really wrap their minds around. Like, I know she looks Chinese, <laughs> but surprise, she was actually born here. Yeah, and I now, like, all of the articles about Anime Wong put every modern fashion spread that discusses Asian-inspired fashion in stark relief because... Because I don't know if the headline East Meets West sort of originates in terms of pop culture use originates with anime Wong articles. But holy crap, like that seems like they couldn't write anything else. They were so everybody's minds were blown that this is an American woman born in America, in case you were wondering, um, who didn't speak with an accent. And they, they just couldn't get over the like the, the discrepancy there. Yeah, and and the treatment of Asians at the time that she was born is very much reminiscent of what we talked about in our Spicy Latinas episode, exploring how those anti-Mexican, in particular, uh, stereotypes really started to creep in at this time. Because as Anne Helen Peterson lays out, in the 19th century, the first mostly male Chinese laborers start coming to the U.S. And then in 1882, you have something called the Chinese Exclusion Act, barring their entry to the country because they were believed to be immoral, unhealthy, and a threat to our fabric of society. So this is the environment where things are happening. And there was also a lot of of, uh, discomfort, too, with the fact that a lot of Asian women, because of these kinds of U.S. policies, were not allowed to come into the United States as well. There were fears that they would bring over things like STDs. So you had these communities of mostly Asian men that white people similarly were like, oh, what's going on over there? That's not right. There aren't any women. But at the same time, they judged their women as being immoral too. So there was it was just a mess to begin with. And here's Anna Mae Wong, who grows up in L.A. and decides... To be an actress. Yeah, so she starts appearing as an extra in a few films being shot in Chinatown when she's like 14. She gets her dad's permission and he only lets her go if she is constantly supervised and chaperoned by a bunch of big dudes. Uh, but she began acting full-time in 1921 with her big break coming in 1922's The Toll of the Sea, which is basically another take on the Madame Butterfly storyline. And, of course, her character's name is Lotus Flower. Um, but despite the fact that she's a great beauty and a great actress, she's got this passion for acting, the racism of the day kept her from everything from attending Hollywood parties to even kissing her white co-stars on screen, thanks to things like California's anti-miscegenation law. She also was super afraid to be caught 
with any white co-stars out and about in the same way that celebrities today, if their photos taken and they're together, everybody automatically assumes they're dating or sleeping together, whatever. Celebrities back then, especially celebrities of color, were also subject to all of these assumptions. And so she was quoted as saying uh, that she had to cut off a bunch of love affairs because she was so worried that one or both of them would get personally hurt or that professionally hurt. Yeah, and so this is similarly reflected in the roles that she's offered because she could only ever play either a more sympathetic character who has to kill herself like a Chocho-san because her exotic love is doomed and also, P.S., they can't show them kissing, so it's not like they can really have a romance blossom. Uh, Or she would play a dragon lady temptress who tries to thwart romance between two lily white leads. So not exactly uh, much of a, a range she was, you know, at liberty to explore. But the tabloids loved her. This is one thing that Peterson noted that unlike, say, black actresses of the day who would not have gotten any coverage at all, because Anna Mae Wong was lighter skinned and still exotic, and the fact that she just wasn't black, they could still talk about her. She would never make the cover of a magazine. Right. But, ooh, she made for just such tantalizing content, as we would say in the Internet age today. Right. And one of the descriptors that they tended to use for really Asian people in general, but definitely for Anime Wong as well, is talking about her ancient race. There's always this discussion by white media back then, and I don't know, maybe today, about the ancient races of Asia, as if we have somehow excavated from some block of ice, like entire groups of people who've just been around alive for centuries. Giving them like the dinosaur treatment almost. But yeah, so along those same lines, uh, one of the fan magazines of the time said that she reminds us of cruel and intricate intrigues and at the same time of crooned Chinese lullabies. She brings to the screen the rare comprehension and the mysterious colors of her ivory-skinned race. Whew. So considering that climate... It's not terribly surprising that she never really broke through America's outsized racism to become an A-lister, unlike one of her gal pals, Marlena Dietrich, who mm-hmm. she befriended when she moved to Europe, where things were a bit more liberal. And she was even passed over at certain times for Chinese character lead roles that were instead cast with white ladies. For instance, in 1932... Madam Butterfly, the movie, starred Cary Grant as Pinkerton, which that broke my heart a little bit because, yes, did I have a childhood crush on Cary Grant? Oh, for sure. Totally. Mr. Blanding's built his dream house. Hello. Hello. I know someone who can fill that dream bedroom. (laughs) And his Chocho-san? Oh, well, Sylvia Sidney. Of course. Famed white lady. Yes. Famed white lady, Sylvia Sidney. Uh, And there were all of these uh, magazine spreads at the time, kind of behind the scenes of these films, detailing how they transformed white women into Asian characters, which was just a lot of, like, racist, uh, awful, like, here's how we pull her eyes back and put her in yellow face uh, and make her talk with a, a broken English accent. It was all pretty horrifying. Um, but there was, and Helen Peterson points out over in that BuzzFeed article, uh, a film version of the book The Good Earth, which was not perfect in its depiction of Asian people, but still a little bit better, a little bit more rounded. And so she points out that MGM offered Anime Wong the role of, again, Lotus, uh, a slinky tea house dancer who seduces the main moral character and becomes his second wife. But anime Wong actually refused the role because at this point she'd been to Europe. She saw that it could be better. She saw that her friend Marlene Dietrich was getting these great roles. She saw that white women were portraying Asian women. All, all on screen everywhere. And so she said, you're asking me with Chinese blood to do the only unsympathetic role in a picture featuring an all-American cast portraying Chinese characters? No thanks. So she turned that down and basically stepped back from large roles. 
So by the time we get to World War II, when relationships between, say, the United States and the Japanese become far more complicated, to say the least, this relationship is already so dysfunctional. We already have these ideas firmly ingrained in popular culture. And we're going to talk more about World War II and the Lotus Flower Revival when we come right back from a quick break. So once World War II happens and then we're involved in the Korean War and in Vietnam, American soldiers and Americans in general are put more in contact with Asian cultures than really ever before. And they're dealing with them in ways that they've never really dealt with them before. And of course, unfortunately, one of the ways in which American GIs and Asian women are become involved is through the sex trade. Yeah, I mean, of course, there were actual relationships that might have been taking place, but there was rampant uh, prostitution that was happening, also rape between soldiers and local women. And again, we return to this era of gendering of the East, so sort of refeminizing this area of the world, which certainly isn't a coincidence because, yet again, you have this Western power, the Occident, like trying to uh, reassert its dominance to be the masculine world power. And it's Madame Butterfly all over again, culturally, with similar stories that we've talked about in the first half of the podcast, repackaged repeatedly, only this time with more white guy savior twists and prostitutes with hearts of gold. Yeah, and Kristen put together a list, and I've only seen one of the movies on this list, and that's South Pacific, which premiered on Broadway in 1949. When I was growing up, my dad was such a huge like Broadway and musical fans, so I'm definitely familiar with South Pacific. But in this era, you also get 1957's Sayonara. In 1960, you get The World of Susie Wong. And in the 80s, we see Miss Saigon, which is set in Vietnam, as we already mentioned, but also Full Metal Jacket, which coined some more unsavory pop cultural references with the whole miso horny line that we've heard. Not only from that movie, but it got also shuttled into music as well. Yeah, and and today we still see Hollywood peddling stereotypical roles for Asian actresses. They're either model minorities, you know, the nerdy kid in class. They're dragon lady businesswomen. They're sexy kung fu masters or non-English speaking immigrants running dry cleaners or they're prostitutes. And if we move away from the big screen to the small screen, Television is slightly more progressive, as it usually is, but just slightly. It's not like it's the land of plenty. Yeah, of course, Grey's Anatomy fans will recognize Sandra Oh's name. She she was probably my favorite character, definitely was my favorite character on Grey's Anatomy back when I used to watch it. And her character's existence was certainly not built or shaped around her race at all. Um, you also have Lucy Liu, who I love too. She went from being sort of the resident dragon lady on Allie McBeal to a more well-rounded character on the show Elementary as Watson. And then on Glee, you have Jenna Ushkowitz and Hetian Park on Hannibal as investigator Beverly Katz. And this was really interesting. So um, spoiler alert for those of you who are not caught up on Hannibal. Park's character was written off the show. And I won't tell you how. We'll just say that she was written off the show. And there was a fan outcry, partially because... It is still relatively rare to see Asian women in these more well-rounded roles. And she took to her blog to personally respond to the fan outcry. And it really, you know, gets at how this issue is still alive and well in Hollywood. So she wrote, quote, I'd rather focus on the positive stuff. I got to play this amazing woman who didn't have to sleep with anyone or act dumb and girly or fawn all over some guy to be conniving to get people to notice or respect me. And she didn't speak broken English or karate chop anyone. Not that I would have minded. Nobody called her dragon lady or exotic. Yeah, it's just that whole idea of of 
normalizing diversity and and having TV and film represent our everyday experience, what we're seeing on the street. And so not having a character, like I was saying with Sandra Oh on Grey's Anatomy, that's built entirely around someone's Asian-ness. Having an Asian actor or actress be able to play just a character on a TV show. Um, and over at Salon, though, they point out that two particular Orange is the New Black characters aren't as well-rounded as they could be. And those are the characters of Soso and Chang, that they sort of hew stereotypical and that their backstories either haven't been fleshed out enough or that they haven't gotten as much play as some of the other characters. Yeah, it seems like Kamiko Glenn's plotline playing Soso is a little less stereotypical. Like, if anything, um, she... You know, portrays the mental health realities that can be associated with not only, well, being in prison, but also these model minority expectations that, uh, you know, do sometimes happen within uh, Asian American households. But with Chang, um, up until this most recent season, I mean, she was very much just a stock character and a little bit of comic relief, but I remember watching it. I mean, long before, obviously, we were searching for this episode and thinking like, huh, okay, that's kind of an outlier, especially before Soso came along. She was the only Asian character and rarely spoke. Yeah, well, in that Salon article, the writer was like, well, I'm not trying to argue for more Asian women in prison, <laughs> um, but the whole underrepresentation of Asian characters in this show that takes place in a prison does sort of reflect the existing stereotype of Asians as the quote-unquote model minority, that they never do anything wrong. They just study math and get good grades and get married and go on to be model citizens. When even if some people do think that that model minority stereotype is positive, like, hey, we're not saying that you break the law, so shouldn't you be grateful? It's still squashing entire groups of people down to a one-dimensional representation that doesn't reflect reality. Absolutely. Well, and, and speaking of squashing down a culture to not reflect reality, um, very briefly, this is something that we've seen female pop stars in particular uh, pedal out with some of their acts. I mean, this is more of a bigger conversation about cultural appropriation. But this is also, too, recycling some of these fetishistic images that we've talked about. So I, I feel like the conversation really got started way back now, in the olden days of 2004, when Gwen Stefani uh, released Love Angel Music Baby. And as part of her shtick with that, she hired on the Harajuku girls, Posse, to not only appear in shows and, and backup dance for her, but just to be her posse everywhere. Well, to be her accessories, yeah, I think is what a lot of people took issue with, as you can really claim about any type of cultural appropriation or, or plenty of stuff that musicians do in music videos. Uh, you know, there have been plenty of people like Miley Cyrus and Taylor Swift who've been accused of similar things, but with African-American women. Um, but in 2013, you also have uh, Katy Perry at the American Music Awards recycling that tired geisha image of the cutesy, diminutive, submissive woman. Carrying the little parasol. Wearing the kimono. Yeah. And then it, also in 2013, Avril Lavigne's Hello Kitty video was very much Japanese schoolgirl. A lot of people weren't too happy about that. Her defense was, hey, I shot it in Japan and, and the director was Japanese. I love Japanese culture, which is why a lot of this really meanders over more to a conversation about cultural appropriation than these kinds of this fetishization that we're talking about. But it's still related. It's all part of the same ball of wax. Yeah, because whether you're fetishizing someone or you're appropriating part of their culture, you're still just taking a tidbit of information that is oftentimes false or misrepresentative and using it to represent entire groups of people. And it's definitely something that you see play out when you do talk about romantic or sexual relationships and dating and uh, the way that people who are accused of having yellow fever are talked about. But there's still pervasive stereotyping, especially when it comes to relationships between white men 
and Asian women. And I'm not just talking about, you know, fetishization that some white dudes might have, particularly for Asian women, but I'm talking about from the outside looking in too mm-hmm. and our outside assumptions when we see those couples and the whole yellow fever thing of saying, oh, well, he must be like that. She must be like that. They're like X, Y, Z. Yeah. And Patricia Park, uh, in that bitch article that we cited earlier, talks a lot about how everyone from comedians to frat boys to whoever recycles a lot of that, to borrow a phrase, ancient praise of Asian women's supposed physical perfection. The fact that they are small and petite everywhere. Yeah, um, this is something, too, that Karen Ng wrote about in also in a bitch article that was published in 2000 called The Yellow Fever Pages. And it's cited in so many pieces that talk about this. Um, and she wrote, the fantasy Asian is intelligent yet pliable, mysterious yet ornamental, perpetually prepubescent, ageless and petite. And she comes from a culture where women traditionally serve men. So, you know, you package all of that up together and you get yellow fever. Meanwhile, too, we have the more cultural castration of Asian men in the United States. And there is some disturbing evidence of that, especially if you look at the sex industry, especially in Southeast Asia and and sex tourism being the primary tourist attraction in Thailand. Yeah, and then you combine that with the fact that you've got all of these websites that are dedicated to matching up American men with Asian women, and that that's a huge market in, of, in and of itself. It's almost like a new type of arranged marriage. And then far more casually and anecdotally in the United States, the, there's the kind of the offhand suggestion to, say, Asian girlfriends of like, oh, you know what? You should date this guy because he loves Asian girls. Um, and a huge YouTuber, Anna Akana, made a fantastic video about this in which She just said, no, stop, stop, shut it down. Don't do any of that because it's kind of racist and insulting, basically. And there, in fact, is an entire documentary called Seeing Asian Female about online dating specifically to find an Asian bride. And uh, it was made by Chinese-American documentarian filmmaker Debbie Lum, who follows this guy, you know, as he seeks out a girlfriend um, and wife, he he wants an Asian wife and particularly a Chinese born woman. And he meets her online. He travels to China. She comes back with him. They get married. Yeah, this guy, Stephen, definitely wasn't portrayed in the best light. Uh, that's a nice way of saying uh, he was definitely portrayed as a creep. And his wife was definitely portrayed as someone who was just seeking a visa. So this wasn't a glowing representation of white guy meets Asian girl, they fall in love. This wasn't sort of a fairy tale story. And not surprisingly, Stephen did not love being portrayed as this pathetic white guy with a massive fetish. And he left this huge comment on the NPR story, which was fascinating. Um, but he says that, you know, lightheartedly, he could accept the dismissive and negative phrase yellow fever. But he says, in reality, that sounds far more strange than how I view it, like an affliction rather than a preference. But you have to keep in mind that he was explicitly seeking out Asian women and that he zeroed in on Chinese women after communicating with countless women uh, and realizing that he liked the communication style of Chinese women more. So whatever that means. Um, well, and even the notion that you like the and I don't maybe he gets into this more in the documentary. I would hope so, because as someone, Caroline, who spent uh, almost three weeks in China, <laughs> I'm an expert. Um, but the very idea that it's like saying, oh, I, I like how American women uh, communicate, where it's like, uh, wherever you go, it's going to be a little bit different. Regional differences, especially if you go to China, big differences depending on 
where you're going in the country, where she grew up, what her family dynamic yeah. was are like. You, so wait, are you saying that like women can be different? I'm saying people can be different. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Crazy. But, you know, he, a lot of people would argue, as Stephen might, that this is just his preference, the way that somebody might like a blonde mate or somebody else might like somebody who's tall. Uh, that this is just a preference. Yeah. I mean, I will be completely honest. I mean, because why not? I've only ever dated white guys. It's not that I have not dated guys of other ethnicities because I have, ooh, no, but that has been what I've been attracted to. So I could see, I can see how you can play it both ways of like, well, maybe, well, maybe that's just my biological innate brain, you know, mechanics leading me to my now, you know, blonde, blue-eyed fiancé. What a dreamboat. He's like a Ken doll. But I mean, other people would say, well, that's just social influences. And so there could definitely be some social influences that led the twice-divorced Stephen to see that his son had married a Japanese woman whom he described as very agreeable. Uh to then decide, well, I'm going to pursue Asian women. I'm just not sure what type yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's kind of no way around it in his case. Um, but regardless, though, of the fact that I I think, you know, that does exist in, in some situations that does exist. Um, there's also, too, side note, Caroline, one thing that I wasn't able to find any analysis on but jumping from that, the stereotype of especially the white geek guy mm-hmm. being extremely attracted to Asian women. There's this whole comic about it called Charisma Man. You can Google it, and it sort of sums up the whole thing. So like Rivers Cuomo? Yeah, like Rivers Cuomo. Yeah, it gets, it, Caroline just made a, a geek face because it does get to a point with that of like, wait, what is what is really going on here? What are these dynamics? Not to like demonize all of you know anyone in this situation, but just wonder what those dynamics are. Well, sure, especially because um, whether you're Asian or whether you have Asian friends or family, uh, you're probably familiar with the horrors that a lot of Asian women face on dating sites. I mean, yes, yes, all women, uh, hashtag all women do face horrific messages and things like that on dating sites. I have was definitely the recipient of a few when I used to be on OkCupid back in the day. Um, but Kristen and I have a friend who used to be on a couple of dating sites and the abuse that she would suffer from men who were saying horrific things that were based purely on her race, purely on her Asian-ness. I, I just don't know um, how you can say that. It's not an Asian fetish. I just like Asian chicks. I mean, it definitely speaks to the power of these stereotypes. Going back to old Pierre Lodi. Mm-hmm. Come on, Pierre. And it's unfortunate because when we get out of stereotype and fetishization land and into attractionville... <laughs> You know, you have plenty of healthy, real-world relationships between Asian women and white guys. And because, though, of all of that stereotypical baggage now, they have to deal with assumptions. This was something that Victoria Chan wrote about over at Vice, basically saying, like, you're, like, these stereotypes are making my relationship unbearable sometimes because of the things people say to me, the jokes yeah. that I'm expected to endure, and also just this assumption that my boyfriend is a creep. Yeah, it is that dual awfulness of having to endure casual racism. Uh, one of the examples that Chan gave was they went to her boyfriend's family's place over the summer, and they were going to play beer pong, and people were like, hey, you'll like this. It's just like ping pong. <gasps> yeah, your your people are familiar with that, um, which I think she was talking about caused a fight with her and her boyfriend, and he apologized on behalf of the person. But So you've already got to deal with the pressures of one member of the relationship having to deal with racism, whether it's explicit or implicit or direct or indirect, um, and one not. One being, as she says, the privileged middle class white guy 
Um, but then also having to deal with assumptions about your relationship, like that stinks that people are just looking at you and being like, ugh. Asian lady and white guy? Hmm, your boyfriend must be a creep. Something's twisted. Well, and and she brought up, too, the assumptions that, well, she must be ashamed of her heritage. Or she's just, you know, why doesn't she want to be with an Asian guy? What does she think is wrong with, with, with those guys? Um, which, which, again, is unfortunate because these relationships exist. I mean, if we look at marriage, as of 2013, 28% of Asian newlyweds in the U.S., partnered up outside of their race. And this is coming from the Pew Center. 37% of Asian women married someone who isn't Asian and compared to 16% of Asian men. So these couplings are like totally common, you know, Mm -hmm. but so unfortunately weighed down with this baggage, which so unfortunately just relates back to imperialism and the Occident just being gross jerks. Yeah, it was sort of crazy to put it all in the perspective that so many of the stereotypes that we culturally hold about Asian women in general come from just some white guys who went into a previously pretty insular, closed society and wrote books or plays or operas about it. And... uh so that's that's what we think of Asian women. Thanks a lot. And what do we do then, Caroline? What can we... The change starts with us. The change starts... Yeah, just like that Michael Jackson song. Yes. Podcasters in the mirror. <laughs> uh, so one thing, though, that we can do on an individual level to make life a little bit easier with all this stuff is stop the questions of, oh, but where are you really from? Oh, no, 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 no. I know that you were born in the United States, but I mean, where are you really from? Yeah, because then all that does is echo back to those articles about Anime Wong, who people were like, wait, 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 you're Chinese, but you're also American, but you were born here. Why don't you have an accent? Where right. are you from? Where are you really from? Because all of this really just amounts to a giant pile of othering. Mm-hmm. And while you might think, oh, I don't perpetuate these kinds of stereotypes, it there are more of those microaggressions, we could say that we can all probably pay closer attention to. And seriously, friends, if you have a, a single Asian friend that you want to hook up, don't don't suggest the guy who exclusively dates Asian girls. You know? Like don't don't try to don't pull that whole thing. Yeah. I yeah, because then that just makes you feel or makes your friend feel like uh, she's just another another widget in a collection of things. Like if you were to say, Caroline, I've got this this guy for you. Uh, he he's really into short girls. He only dates girls with bangs. <laughs> You'll have a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah, hairstyling and tall shoes. Um, but yeah, that just that just enforces that nobody could be possibly interested in you for you and your personality, but that something about you physically or culturally is the biggest, most important part of you. Well, I'm really curious, though, Caroline, to hear from listeners who might experience these kinds of stereotypes, unfortunately, in their relationships or in how they're treated in their dating experiences, um, whether they might be like a white guy who is in, has been interested in or dated or married to an Asian woman or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on this kind of stereotyping? Or is this just something that you can block out and just completely disregard as nonsensical because a lot of it really is momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address you can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on facebook and we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now So I have a letter here from Christina. She says, I just wanted to say hi and tell you how much I enjoy your podcasts. I've been listening for a few years. You make mowing the grass and running fun. Oh, wow. Mowing the grass fun. Okay. 
Uh, she says, as a woman who's consistently worked in non-traditional types of jobs, I love the girl power feeling I get from listening to your topics. I think there has been some progress in attitudes towards women in male-dominated professions, but there is still so far to go. I've been a military police officer in the Army, a civilian city police officer, and now I work in the firearms industry. If I had a dollar for every time a customer calls in and assumes I'm the receptionist or asks for someone who can answer a technical question as if there is no way I would know anything about those scary things that go bang, I could retire tomorrow. My coworkers are all male and no one ever calls and assumes they cannot assist them. I've even had several occasions where I've been told straight up that they want to speak to a man. Most of the time, I'm happy to just surprise them by showing that I do, in fact, know my stuff. I hope you guys have a great week and keep up the awesome podcasting. Well, thanks, Christina. Keep up the awesome listening and knowing things about those scary things that go bang. Well, I've got a letter here from Abby, and she writes, I'm in a gender and work sociology class at the University of Georgia right now, in which my professor has so graciously exposed my classmates and I to your podcast. For this short summer course, we've been required to listen to seven of your podcasts, but seven has simply not been enough for someone like me who is so interested in educating myself on gender type issues. Side note, we give that professor an A+. That's so cool. We're part of a syllabus, Caroline. I love it. In recently listening to your podcast on bi erasure, I found myself getting excited and somewhat sad at how true everything you were saying was. As a bi-slash-pan woman in a hetero relationship, I find my queer status being questioned all the time. I recently faced some complications in my relationship where I admittedly cheated on my significant other with a woman. I felt terrible. But when all of my friends found out afterward about how much of a toll the instance had taken on my relationship, I ran into my favorite question. You only hooked up with a woman, so why does it matter? People were insistent that I, had I cheated with a man, my significant other would have every right to be heartbroken. But since it was only with a woman, he was overreacting. Some people even dared suggest that my significant other should have only been upset because he wasn't able to watch the interaction. You can imagine how invalidating this was to both my sexuality and to his emotions. This also touches on your mention of female bisexuality being more accepted. I think it's important to note that true female bisexuality is not actually accepted at all. Instead, it's a hypersexualized idea of girl-on-girl physical contact we so often see in porn that's truly accepted. I hope for one day where sexuality need not be so defined and that a queer individual's sex life must be exposed so explicitly in order to be justified. Thanks for all of your hard work. And thank you, Abby. And that is horrific of your friends. And I hope that they came back and later apologized. So if you have any emails to send to us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is where you can send them. And for links to all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, with links so you can learn more of the history of these Asian stereotypes, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 